0: As we've been working through the book of Daniel, uh, we've been thinking about it thematically. And thematically, what we've been talking about is the fact um, that the Bible portrays that on top of, beyond of, uh, beyond and above the empires of this world, the governments that we know by name, the influence and authorities we live under, there's also this reality of God as sovereign king. There's the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus came and preached on the most, was the fact that in his coming, so came the kingdom of God. That puts us in an interesting place today. That puts us in a place where we are simultaneously citizens of God's kingdom as Christians, as well as citizens of whatever empires make up the world. And so thematically, what we've been doing through the book, we've been uh, looking at kind of royal characteristics, royal traits. We've looked at uh, our glorious king. We've looked at our sovereign king. Uh, Next week, we'll look at our king, the lawmaker. Today, we're going to look at our king, the judge. And uh, to be really honest, judgment often in our culture gets a pretty bad rap. In fact, most people's introduction uh, to Christianity assumes that we as Christians have a pretty bad rap for judgment. Do not judge is the one verse that everybody's aware of, right, in our Bibles. Uh, but it's really important to re- remember the good side of God as judge. Oftentimes when I talk to non-Christians who wrestle with the existence of God, the place they begin is with the problem of evil. If God is there, why are there these terrible things in the world? Why the Holocaust? Why starvation? Why war? Uh, Why atomic bombs? Um, And more often, actually, if you keep pressing, if God is real, then why did I lose my mother to cancer? If God is real, then why have I seen this personal form of evil? And it's possible. It's possible that the existence of evil makes us question God, but I I would suggest that if God is a just judge... If he's going to right every wrong, if he's going to hold every person accountable, then actually we have a very good way to make sense of the things we see. Because the struggle we face as human beings is that we live in a world that is full of injustice. And because we live on kind of a a temporal plane, we live and we die, it's very clear that not everybody gets what they deserve. It's very clear that not every right uh, or every wrong is set right. It's very clear that not every act of wickedness is held accountable. But if there really is a sovereign God and a final judgment, then there is reason for hope in the midst of evil. And that's really what the passage is about this morning. It's about the good side of God as judge. Let me lay out the context again for you. We are traveling in the kingdom of Babylon. The people of Israel, because of their sins and God's sovereign judgment, have been taken out of the land of Israel, transported to the land of Babylon, but that was not like you know, winning, in a, winning a vacation online. Um, It was filled with violence and oppression and cruelty. Babylon was one of the first Western empires. It was one of the fiercest empires. It devastated the nations around it, uh, plundered their resources, took their children as their own. In fact, Daniel himself is basically a prisoner of war. He's a captive. He's been taken from his home, from his family, Some scholars believe castrated and made a eunuch and put in the employ of the court of the king. Now, if you've been following along with us, Daniel has been serving primarily under the first king of Babylon, the one who conquered all this land, Nebuchadnezzar. But as we'll see this morning, we move to a new king, Belshazzar, and he's actually the last, the last of the Babylonian kings. But imagine what it's like to be a person of Israel. Imagine what it's like to be Habakkuk the prophet, for example. Habakkuk, before Babylon comes in and raids his land, says, God, what are you going to do about the injustice in Israel? All of this wickedness is going on, all of this oppression, the righteous are being put down by the wicked. Where are you? And God says, I, has a pl- I have a plan for that, and you're not going to like it. He says, I'm going to bring in the Babylonians, and they will bring judgment on my people. And Habakkuk's mind just explodes. He goes, them? I mean... Israel's bad, but the Babylonians? This is what he says. He says, do you not realize, God, that they are going to take their net and capture all of the nations, take them all as plunder, and then they're going to praise their nets, worship their own power? Why would you do this? And God says, in time, I will also bring justice on the Babylonians. Just because they're a tool in my hand doesn't mean they get a get-out-of-jail free card. But for 70 years, Israel lives under the thumb of Babylon's power, away from the land, with Jerusalem and the temple in devastation. All of that starts to shift here this morning. You have to keep that in mind. The question is, God, will you be just? Will you bring about consequence? Will you let Babylon get away with this? And so, chapter 5, verse 1 begins this way. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. Let's pray. Father, there is an occasion where the angels proclaim in the book of Revelation, Righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And I believe that every person, every mouth, every watching eye will see history resolved in your return and say the same thing. I pray, God, that we would find the good side of your judgment this morning and that we would encounter the God who judges justly. In Jesus' name, amen. So get the picture here. Belshazzar, a king we've not encountered yet, has a huge feast, thousands of attendees. He has a little bit to drink, and he thinks, you know what is a good idea? King Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquered the Jews, took all of the instruments of the temple, of their place of worship, gold chalices, silver cutlery, all of these pieces that were used by the priests to worship the God of the Bible, and he says, let's make those our party favors. He brings them out, he passes them around, he pours a drink, and he holds up these instruments of worship for God, and worships, praises the gods of his own nation. In fact, his name, by the way, Belshazzar, means, Bel, protect the king. And so he worships Bel, he worships the other gods, of the Babylonians, and as he does so, a disembodied hand appears in the palace banquet hall and begins to write something on the wall. And he can't read it, but he's terrified. That's where the story picks up this morning. Now, here's some context that you don't get from our author. Unbeknownst to us reading this morning, unless you're up on your history, this is the last night of Babylon. This is the end of the Babylonian empire. It all stops here. In fact, the city of Babylon is surrounded by a siege and has been for some time. So the reason why that's important is because it doesn't seem like a good time for a party, does it? But the thing is, you have to remember that the city of Babylon had 80 or excuse me, eight-story walls around it. Belshazzar was not afraid. He was confident that they were safe. In fact, the Euphrates River in the eastern eastern, part of the world, that is the river, right? It's the big source of life. You know, remember seventh grade history, Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. That river flows directly under the walls of of the city. Why is that significant? Because a siege is no big deal. They're self-sustained. So here he sets up A party to celebrate and some scholars believe it was just a a calendar holiday or maybe it was something even more bold it's like you want to know how unafraid i am of cyrus the medians and the persians let's have a party and i'll show you whatever reason he's confident and then under the influence of a little bit of alcohol he does something bigger he wants to make a statement don't don't think that the idea here is just you know what those chalices from the Jews' temple are beautiful, much nicer than ours. Babylon was a wealthy city. This is a statement. And the statement is, the last nation who proclaimed that their God was greater than our God, we took them, we routed them. He sits in judge over the God of the Bible, over the God of the Jews, over Jehovah, over Yahweh, and he says, God, i found you wanting. He flexes his muscles. Then there's this appearance of this hand. So verse 5 uh, tells us that this hand appeared, and he responds with fear. The color of his face changes. Uh, it says literally here that his knees knock together. He doesn't know what it means, but he knows that it's bad. And so verse seven, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now I can't resist just adding a little bit of commentary there. The reason it says third ruler of the kingdom is because Belshazzar is not actually the first ruler of the kingdom. His dad, Nabunidus is. But Nabunidus is off fighting Cyrus and never returned. And so Belshazzar is the ruling and reigning king here, but he's so shocked by this, he says, second in command is open to whoever, whoever can solve this riddle. Now, if you've been reading the book of Daniel with us, if you're familiar, you know where this is going. Okay, and so, verse nine, uh, verse eight, the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, this is the queen mother, not his wife, uh, but the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Not, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explained in riddles and solve problems, was found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar. Notice his name, his Babylonian name, is very similar to the king's. Who the king called Belshazzar, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now, a little bit of timeline help for you this, mo- this, uh, this morning. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's at least 25 years, maybe as much as 30, okay? Daniel, who was, in the last chapter, at the top of the king's advisors, in the passing of thrones, has been relegated into obscurity, and has just been effectively living out his retirement. He's now about 75, and he's forgotten. But the queen mother remembers She remembers that Daniel has been here before and where all others failed, he was able to speak, to explain the dream, to give counsel. And so she says, call for Daniel. And so Daniel comes. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel, you're the Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. Five minutes ago, that's a funny way to put it. I've heard of you that the spirits of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you now. The wise men, the enchanters, have been brought before me to read this writing and make known its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give the interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing, make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts before yourself... And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And so he says, I don't want your goods. I don't want your wealth. I don't want your riches. I don't want your appointment. He keeps himself at a distance and he says, but I will tell you what it says. Now I want you to notice that before he gets to reading the writing on the wall, he gives a little bit of context. And this is what Emma was sharing with the children this morning. He says, have you forgotten have you forgotten what happened with Nebuchadnezzar? You see, in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had been warned that although God had given him the entire kingdom, it was a gift, that if he exalted himself in pride, that he would be laid down low, that he would lose his mind, be driven into, uh, out of his kingdom, that he would believe himself to be an animal for seven years. All of this comes to pass, and Nebuchadnezzar writes this letter that makes up chapter 4, and he says... I understand now that God is the one who gives and takes away kingdoms, who appoints whoever he wills, and who is capable of humbling the proud. And so here's Belshazzar, not actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but the, uh, the following king. He's in the line. You know, It's father and son in that sense, that he was your predecessor. And he says, have you forgotten what you learned? Read with me in verse 18. O king, The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingships and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and who are all your ways, you have not honored. He gives three indictments here. He accuses the king of three crimes. He speaks here and says, God is justly judging you, Belshazzar, and he points to three different crimes of the king. And I want you to notice this morning because honestly, if we were to make a list of the crimes of Babylon, it would be long. They would be war crimes, they would be issues of national politics, of oppression and injustice and fierce violence. But these ones are tremendously theological. The concerns that Daniel brings here is not the treatment of the poor or the oppressed, not the conquering of other nations, not the blood and the violence and the cruelty. And just a side note, history tells us that Belshazzar was a pretty wicked king. In fact, we're pretty sure, we're piecing together the pieces, we're pretty sure he came to the throne by plotting against Nebuchadnezzar and installing his father, knowing that his father was elderly and he'd get the throne. But he was the one pulling the strings. We have a lot of wicked stories of King Belshazzar, but the challenge here is threefold. The first one is you have been proud instead of humble. The second is you have taken these things from the, from the temple and you have drank from them. And the third is you have worshipped idols instead of the God who gives you breath. Very theological, focused on God. In fact, that second one, because that's the one where you go, but wait, what's this about? that is basically an elevation move. Belshazzar is greater than the God of the Jews. The implements that were made for his worship should be reutilized for the worship of Belshazzar, for his glory. But nonetheless, it's very focused on God, and the thing we have to recognize this morning is that this always precedes that, that if there's a cart and a horse In what the Bible calls sin, the horse is always vertical before it ever goes horizontal. Pride, the first criticism, is a good place to see this. The reformers taught that pride wasn't a sin, but a root sin. That it's pride where we begin, and that expresses itself through oppression. I mean, just think of how this works in injustice in our own day and age you cannot put down and take advantage of and dehumanize those you see as equals. Pride says, I am greater. Pride says, I am more powerful. Pride says, I am more worthy. But pride also says, I determine my worth. Pride also says, I am the center of the universe like we talked about last week. You cannot stand against God's creation, other human beings created in his image, and elevate yourself over them without intentionally elevating yourself against God. Remember what the Bible says happens to Eve when the serpent speaks to her in Genesis 3? You too can be like God. You too can take that position of power and prominence and glory. That is pride. Everything that follows in the Bible begins with that moment. Every sin, the murder, the murder of Abel by Cain. Why did he do it? Because he was jealous that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was not. Pride. I know I'm better than my brother. How can God not know that? The war crimes of Babylon and Belshazzar in particular are great, but the root, it's a little close to home. What about the second one? It says here that he took the vessels of the temple and he used them. He drank from them. Now, one of the things you have to understand here is that the language of him doing this parallels the language of Daniel himself. And so these are the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar brought from Judea and Daniel is the person that Nebuchadnezzar brought from Judea. Okay? This isn't just about cutlery and silverware. It's about the things that belong to God. Jesus once was asked, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And get the weight of that question. Caesar is the leader of Rome. The Jews believe that God is their king. Is it right and appropriate to support this foreign government that's oppressive and ruling over them or not? Now, we know from reading the context that this is a trick question that the real reason this question is being asked is because there's centurions listening in for signs of uh, proving that Jesus is a traitor, and then there's also the Jewish people who would be upset if Jesus stands with Rome. And Jesus answers, as he often does, with a question. And he says, give me a Roman coin. Hand me, hand me a Roman coin. And he holds it up and he says, whose picture is on this coin? Whose inscription is on this coin? And they go, well, it's Caesar's. And without missing a beat, he says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, that's a clever answer because it gets him out of a rock and a hard place, but it's also very significant theologically. Effectively, what he says there is, yes, you owe things to government, but you also owe things to God. You see, when we mistreat others, We mistreat someone who belongs to God, someone who we did not make, and someone who God has marked with his own image, it says in the book of Genesis. The reason why taking advantage of others is so significant is not just because they are individuals, not just because they are human, but because they belong to the God who made them and loves them. Once again, this is a root issue. Most of the sin in our life comes from this place. It says, I want what I want. I deserve what I want. I'll take what I want. What's to keep that in check in our hearts is this reality that what I want is subject to God's will. That the things, the people that stand in my way or the ones that I can use to get there also belong to God. See, our modern world tries to stand on the narrow stilt of autonomy, individuality, recognize that person as a person and a person alone, but the heart of human rights comes from Christianity. It comes from this place uh, that God has instilled in us certain unalienable rights, that because we are marked with the image of God, because we belong to someone greater than the government we belong to, than the employer we belong to, that we have inherent dignity worth and rights worth protecting. It gets back to the same place. When we sin against others, inherently, consistently, we sin against God. The last one there is idolatry. He says, you took those cups and you worship gods of bronze and silver and gold and wood and you did not worship the God who gave you breath. Do you see the contrast there? It's not just the contrast between You know, these physical idols that are not gods and the real God who is alive, it's a contrast between the idols that you made and pretend have life and the God who gave you life. That's the difference. Now, a lot of times when we read the Old Testament, especially and we look at idolatry, we think, how quaint? Worshiping a block of wood, thinking that it's a God, even though you're the one who carved it. And that is one of the criticisms that the prophets in the Bible make of the nations around them. They say, look, you're gods. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see your needs. And they cannot carry you. In fact, you carry them. But oftentimes, we miss the irony of that. The point is not, why are you worshiping a block of wood? It's, it's surprising how well that block of wood represents you're not God. Because, in fact, take that idea of being created in the image of God. Did you know that word for image in the Old Testament is the same one that's used of an image like an idol? The only thing that can show us who God is and is intended to do so is us. Now, we're fallen. That image has been marred. But we're living, we're breathing, we're thinking, we're loving. When we make something away from that, it often points to, it represents something. See, here's the thing. The gods that the Babylonians worshipped, that the Canaanites worshipped, they're the same gods we worship today. They were the gods of wealth and prosperity. They were the gods of power. They were the gods of security, the gods of fertility and sex. The statues just personified. They just represented those. And the prophet said, it's a good representation. It's a spitting image because your god cannot save you. It cannot give you life. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans That even though creation itself shows us who God is, that instead we've taken created things and worshipped those. Like money. Like sex. Like power. Authority. All of these things are God-given gifts. And when we elevate them, it's not even that they're bad things. They're just not ultimate things. They cannot save us. They cannot satisfy us. In fact, here's another thing that the reformers said. Not only did they see uh, pride as a root sin, but when they read the Ten Commandments and they read the first one that says, you know, honor God and him alone and make no idol before him. And then they read all the other ones. Don't steal, don't murder. They said that every other of the Ten Commandments flows from the first. And that you never commit the others until you've committed the first. Okay? In other words... Idolatry is the heart of sin. Wickedness, injustice, abuse. When we worship other things, the people in our life become either conduits to that thing that we use to get what we want or obstacles to that thing that we remove so that they're no longer in our way. I want wealth, and so I overwork. I neglect my family. I want power so I abuse, and I crush. I want security, so I distance, and I avoid, and I ignore, and I build walls. It's idolatry. You see, here's the problem. For the Jews to look at Belshazzar and say, that guy deserves to be judged, where is God's justice, is absolutely true. And the Bible proclaims that not only is God going to judge Babylon here, but it widens out in the book of Revelation and says the spirit of Babylon that flows through all of these wicked empires, all of these governments that we experience, all of the oppression that makes up the world, it also will fall. And God will bring it to justice. There are those in the book of Revelation who are martyrs, who have been killed by governments for their faith, and we see them under the throne in the book of Revelation crying out, how long, Lord, how long until you bring justice, Till you bring vengeance for us, Till you set it right? And a voice is heard that says, just a little longer. But justice is sure, it's coming, it's true. But there's something troubling here, we'll come back to it in just a second. These things don't sound that unique. Maybe Belshazzar is a comparable member of the human race to Hitler, but at at the heart of hearts, is it that different from us? You see, that was the problem for Habakkuk. When he asked God, When will you bring justice? He wasn't looking at Babylon, he was looking at Israel. He was looking at his own people. For many of us, we get this. It's not, it's not non Christians we're worried about, it's not oppressive powers elsewhere, it's the church. It's people who say they know Jesus, in fact, Here we find the finger of God writing on the wall. The finger of God, every time it occurs in the Bible, stands for God as judge. And so it's the finger of God, according to the book of Exodus, that carves out the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. Jesus, when he comes, speaks of his kingdom and he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then truly the kingdom of God has arrived. But it was also that finger of God that knelt down and drew in the dust when the religious leaders had dragged a half-naked woman into his presence and said, we caught her in the very act of adultery. The law says that we should stone her, that we should kill her, that we should take her life. What do you say? And he doesn't say anything. He kneels down and begins to write in the dust. John doesn't tell us what he was writing, but he tells us what the writing did. All the men standing there, beginning with the oldest, left one by one, in order of their age. It's just a hunch. But I think he was writing an indictment. The finger of God, again, was at work bringing judgment. And where did we find it? In the religious leaders. They were the ones deserving. Who did Jesus condemn the most in his ministry? Those who say they know God. It's the same with Belshazzar. He should know. He saw what God was capable of didn't change things. Knowledge of God and surrender to that self-same God are not the same thing. Even James says, so you believe in God, congratulations, so do the demons. And yet in the Bible, the demonic is in utter and constant rebellion. It's not knowledge of God that saves us. So, he lays out these indictments and then he brings the judgment itself. He says, I'm going to tell you what it says on the wall. Read it with me here. Verse 24, Then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mine, mine, tekel, and parson. If you have an older one, it says tekel, u parson. U is literally just Aramaic for and. It's just, just left untranslated for some reason. But effectively, these words as nouns are financial terms. Maybe you've heard of a mina, like the parable Jesus told. That's this word, mine. Maybe you've heard of a shekel. This is the Aramaic spelling of shekel, okay? And uh, parson there just means half. And so it could have stood for like a half dollar or a half shekel or even a half mina, but it's just there. It's financial terms. Most commentators believe that actually this was written on the wall and everybody could read it. It's not that they couldn't read the language. It's that it just didn't mean anything. It looked like somebody had just left their accounting behind on the wall. Mine, mine, tekel, farsum." What he does when he interprets it here, though, is he uses a play on words and points to verbs that sound just like these words. And so notice what he says. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mine, God has numbered. That's the verb that sounds like mina. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Okay, you have, your days are numbered, you've been weighed and found wanting, your life has been put in the scales, you don't measure up, and then parson, division, split, it's over. And then notice also the, the word there for parson is incredibly similar in Aramaic to Persian. There's a play on words even there The Persians are the ones along with the Medes who come in and set this right. But here's basically what he says. He says, the time is up. You don't measure up. Judgment is here. That's the meaning. He puts all of those in the perfect tense. Right now. But actually, it's not until a few hours later that this all goes down. In fact, we're going to see that the king says, hey, thanks, that's good information, goes back to his drinking and then is still caught off guard but what I want you to notice is effectively, if what I said earlier is true, that injustice is not just a problem out there, but in here, that if we can't really distance ourselves from this king very easily, that if we can rejoice that God is judge over that and tremble that God is judge over this, then we can read this inscription for ourselves. First, mine, your days are numbered. Let me just remind you that as a human being, that is assured. The scary part of being human is not just that we only have so much time, it's that we don't know how much time there is, but the clock is counting down. Jesus talks about the fact that when the kingdom of God comes, when Jesus returns, like in the days of Noah, it'll be a party. People will be going on with their lives, marrying off their children, celebrating. It'll be just like Belshazzar's feast. But it'll be interrupted. And the time will be over, and let's just be frank. You may not make it to the kingdom of God. You may not make it till tomorrow. Jesus begs us in his preaching to settle with the judge before you get to the courts. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. You've been measured and you do not measure up. That doesn't just apply to Belshazzar. That applies to Israel. Remember here that Daniel is speaking for a people who are currently experiencing the judgment of God. In fact, I would suggest this to you. The way that the first half of Daniel, which is interestingly, sorry, I'm nerding out again, all in Aramaic. It's one of the few parts of the Bible that's not written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. When you look at it, it has a chiastic structure, meaning that it it walks up the stairs and then back down the stairs. And at the center is this judgment of these two kings back to back that are really similar, aren't they? Nebuchadnezzar, high and lofty, God puts him down. Belshazzar, high and lofty, God puts him down. What's the difference? Belshazzar comes to know the living God, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar comes to know the living God. Belshazzar does not. In one, it's actually an act of discipline and grace that brings him to himself, and he proclaims God truly is the living God. It's not what we see in Belshazzar. Here's what I would suggest to you. This same tension is put before Israel. You're in the midst of judgment and it's not the seven times of Nebuchadnezzar, it's the 70 years of Jeremiah. And the question is, is this going to be what brings you to lift up your eyes and turn back to God or is this going to be the final days? This resolves one of the great tensions of the human life, which is, okay, great, so God's going to bring evil Uh, into accountability, but why does he let it into my life? Why doesn't he stop it before he happens? The incredible thing is that God is totally capable of using evil to accomplish good. Nebuchadnezzar's heart is so hard against him, he has no place, no attention for the God who gave him everything. And God graciously brings pain into his life mental illness to wake him up to his need. It's gracious. But that's not the whole story. God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there's still a choice to be made. Nebuchadnezzar makes one. Belshazzar makes the other. Israel sits in the tension. What are you going to choose, Israel? That's the question that these chapters ask us, and it's the same questions for us today. Can you look at your heart and believe the tackle? You have been weighed and found wanting. Can you look that in the face of what it is? Can you look not merely at the failures around you, the people who have let you down, the people who have hurt you, but the hurt that you've done? Can you recognize, even if you feel like you're a relatively nice person, if the God of the Bible is real, the greatest commandment Jesus says is to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's 100% of the time. 100% of your attention, 100% of your energy. If God is truly as good as the Bible proclaims, he's worth that. You're everything. But you haven't given it. And then divided. What a perfect word for what the Bible says is coming. In fact, for us, we usually think of death as an ending. In the Jewish mind, death is separation. Death is separation from your body. Death is separation from your family. And eternal death, the death that Adam's warned about in the very beginning, that's separation from God, the God who is life. But here's the thing that blows my mind. The New Testament proclaims this uh, self-same judge, but he gives him a name. It's Jesus. In the book of Acts, twice, both Paul and Peter... In preaching the gospel, explaining what God has done, he sa- they say this, God has appointed a judge who will judge the living and the dead and demonstrated it by rise- raising him from the dead. This idea that in the Old Testament we have judgment and in the New Testament we have grace is a misunderstanding. Jesus speaks a lot about coming consequence. He speaks about hell and eternal punishment more than any other author in the Bible. The New Testament is full of judgment and Revelation takes all of these things and moves it directly into our lives. Read the last chapter sometime. There's a call to repentance because justice will be served. But go back to Jesus and that woman caught in adultery when he kneels down and he writes in the dirt and what does he say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The first thing he says here is, yes, there's a judge and it's not you. And that's so important. Because right now, that's what we think justice is. Justice is when I have the right opinion of evil. It's not enough. And as they're all confronted with their own evil and they walk away, he stands up and he says, is there no one left who condemns you? She says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How do we reconcile... Jesus the just and coming judge where the books will be opened and the secrets will be discerned and shouted from the rooftops and accountability will had and Jesus who lets this woman off scot-free and says, I bring you no condemnation. In fact, he says in John chapter 3, for I did not come to condemn the world but to save it. You see, the amazing thing that the gospel story tells is that this proclamation, mine, mine, tekel, Farson," was applied to, to the perfect Son of God, that his days were numbered. And they weren't numbered by men. Jesus' life wasn't cut off by human beings, but Peter says, by the foreordained plan of God, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. And constantly, as he travels around, what does he say? I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. He's counting down the days. His days are numbered. The only difference is that when Jesus is weighed in the scales, he's not found wanting. He's found perfect, always doing the things that please the Father, completely without sin, not an ounce of wickedness or even pride. Think about that for a second. Jesus, the very Son of God, who would take the right hand throne of the Father, who knew what equality with God was, Philippians says, and did not consider it something to be held on tightly to, but laid it down willingly and became a man. Jesus is the personification of humility who dedicated his life to worship as a vessel of God. Sacrifices I have not prepared for you, O Lord, but a body you have given me, the prophet said the Messiah would fulfill. Not an ounce of idolatry, Constantly worshiping the true and living God, and yet He's the one who's divided. As His body is pierced, and He cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word, forsaken, there is so similar to the word here, perez. It's division, it's split. Why have you separated from me, Lord? You see, The reason why the judgment of God is important to us as Christians is because it demonstrates to us the grace of God. Because the Bible proclaims that the punishment that we truly and rightly deserve, the evil that is truly and fully in us, has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. As God himself took on flesh and paid the penalty that we deserve and offered us a better way. The question is, humility or pride? Are you going to say, God, I don't need your salvation? Are you going to say, God, I can get there on my own. I can justify myself. I'll just work a little bit harder. Or are you going to have the humility to say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior? Jesus told a parable that reminds me of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. He says, two men went into the temple and one stood and said, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe twice a week. I give uh, you know, offerings to the poor. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And he says, but there was a tax collector in the corner who didn't even raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said, I tell you the truth, that one went away justified. That's a legal term. That one went away completely uh, vindicated. The only way that makes any sense, the only way you can reconcile the two Jesuses of the Gospels and of the New Testament is that he's not just the judge, but the one who took our execution. But the way we respond is either like Nebuchadnezzar, to receive the humbling reality of who you actually are, receive the humbling reality that you need the help of the living God who you've rebelled against, who you've betrayed, or to stand stalwart against the judgment of God. And let me warn you this morning, the Bible says that God is a consuming fire. Let's finish the story. Verse 29, Belshazzar uh, gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Do you get the foolishness of that? Your kingdom is over. Let me reward you, Daniel. You're now second in charge of a crumbling kingdom, of a kingdom that literally has less than hours left. He doesn't receive the warning. He doesn't respond. And let me be clear here. The Bible says that judgment is always avoidable by repentance. But he goes back to the party. And what happens? Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let me finish here. the New Testament talks about heaven being a place where sin is not allowed. Sometimes that bothers our sensibilities. There's a deeper problem that we need to consider. The real reason that bothers us almost always is attached to the fact that we don't see the significance of our own sin. God says, I'm going to put an end to sin, but how does that happen without him putting an end to us? only in Jesus Christ. God is the great and just judge who will set all things right, but he's also the merciful judge who doesn't just pardon our crimes, but pays for them, deals with them entirely, and that's true of the sins against you as well. Jesus didn't come just to deal with your sins against other people, but their sins against you. He can right all those wrongs, He can take the 70 years of Babylonian captivity and all of that oppression and utilize it to accomplish his will. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us, all of us, at one time or another to to just be uncomfortable with this idea of judgment, of eternal punishment. But there are other times where our heart gets the best of us and we know and we long for and we cry out for justice. I pray that we would recognize the good news and the bad news of God's justice and the good news and the good news of God's mercy. I ask, Lord, that we would realign ourselves again with the only one who gets a vote, with the only one we stand before accountable with the God who made us, who gives us breath, who custom-fit all of our gifts and talents and abilities, who invites us into a relationship with him, and who in Jesus Christ looks down on us in all of our mess and all of the mire and all of our sin and says, You are my child. I have clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You stand before me forgiven and vindicated and perfect, and I am am completely committed to you. God, you're not only our judge in Jesus Christ, but you are also our Father. We've been grafted into your family. We praise you for these truths this morning, and we ask that you would just draw them deeper into our heart and that we would, like Daniel, be faithful to proclaim the goodness of your justice so that when we challenge injustice, we can do it not as little judges and little gods who seek to bring vindication, but as mouthpieces of the God who is not only just but merciful. We pray this in your name this morning. Amen.